Hello and welcome back to the Fall of the Roman Empire. My name is Nick Holmes and this is episode 33 called Julian and Persia. In the last episode, I suggested Julian the Apostate might perhaps be better called Julian the Philosopher King, since in my view, he didn't want to eliminate Christianity, but to restore the Roman Empire's religious toleration. There's no doubt that he preferred the ancient gods to Christianity, but he was perfectly prepared to tolerate Christianity as one religion among many. And by promoting religious toleration, this was just one of the ways he hoped to restore the glory of the classical Roman Empire. And in this episode, we'll look at the other way he hoped to restore Rome's glory, by defeating Persia. As we've discussed in earlier episodes, Persia was Rome's traditional enemy, and this rivalry was central to the way in which the ancient world had worked since there had long been a sharp cultural divide between the civilizations of Rome and Greece on the one hand and Persia on the other. For Persia wasn't just Rome's lifelong enemy, it was also Greece's. The Achaemenid Persian Empire tried to conquer ancient Greece, only to be defeated at the famous battles of Marathon and Salamis. And this was followed by Alexander the Great's conquest of Persia, which was one of the biggest game changers in history. Now, Julian was profoundly aware of this historical relationship with Persia. Indeed, there's no doubt that he regarded Alexander the Great as the military ideal to which he aspired, which actually was pretty normal for most Romans. So, he envisaged Persia's defeat as his greatest objective. There were also some more pragmatic reasons why he wanted to defeat Persia. First, he wanted to secure the loyalty of the Eastern army, which had been loyal to Constantius and which he'd very nearly come to blows with in the civil war that never happened. Second, he was a good general. His rise to power was entirely based on his capable leadership of the Gallic army and his string of victories in the West there's no doubt that he thought he could do the same in the East. And because he was sole emperor, he also had the means to defeat the Persians. Constantius had never been able to concentrate the majority of the Roman army against Shapur II, but Julian was able to unite the Western and Eastern armies in the way that the great emperors of old, like Trajan, had done. As a footnote, it's worth noting that Julian's Gallic legions, who you recall mutinied against Constantius's order to march east in 360, now seem to have changed their minds and were perfectly happy to fight in the east under Julian. I think this supports the view that in fact the mutiny of those troops when Julian was proclaimed emperor was probably orchestrated by him as a pretext to seize power, which suggests Julian was a lot more politically cunning than might appear. And to be honest, who can blame him? After all, you don't get to be Roman emperor without a bit of self-promotion. So, on the 5th of March... 363, Julian left Antioch for his campaign against Persia. But before we launch into the story of his campaign, it's worth noting that his stay in Antioch had been deeply unsettling for him personally. He'd gone there in May 362 from Constantinople and had spent nine frustrating months in Antioch 
arguing with both the Christians and pagans in the city. We have exceptionally good records about this time from both Julian himself and the historian Ammianus Marcellinus, and historians have devoted a lot of scholarly ink to analysing it. So, what was the problem? Well, to start with, Julian was very disappointed by how apathetic the pagans in Antioch were about his enthusiasm to revive the ancient gods. In particular, there was a grand temple to Apollo just outside Antioch, which he was particularly excited about. But the inhabitants had largely forgotten about it, and he was very disappointed when he organised what he thought would be a grand ritual sacrifice there to discover that the priest had given up performing any ceremonies and had to rush out to find a goose from a local farm to sacrifice. Things got even worse when the temple burnt down shortly afterwards, probably because of the same negligent priest who Julian had flogged. And just as the pagan priesthood seemed to comprise a bunch of incompetence, so Julian was equally shocked by how strong the enthusiasm of the Christian community in Antioch was. Antioch was probably split 50-50 between Christians and pagans at this time, but it had a rich Christian heritage, claiming to be the cradle of Christianity where Paul the Apostle and Barnabas had established the first Christian community. Julian appears to have underestimated this, and he was annoyed by the power and wealth of the Christian church in Antioch. In particular, there was a huge Christian church called the Golden Church, precisely because it was so richly decorated, and it had been built by Constantine and made even grander by Constantius. The burning of the Temple of Apollo caused Julian to wonder if the Christians were responsible, and in retaliation he closed the Golden Church. So, in brief, Julian succeeded in alienating both Christians and pagans in this great city, and although he wrote one of his most famous pieces just before he left the city, called the Misopogon, or beard hater, in which, with his characteristic humility, he mocked himself as the eponymous bearded philosopher who everyone reviled, but at the same time pointing out that the inhabitants of Antioch were superficial and hypocritical in his view. He was clearly deeply disturbed by the whole experience and vowed never to return to the city. As I mentioned, historians have seen great significance in Julian's experiences in Antioch, especially the view put forward by some that he wanted a return to a classical past that no longer existed, i.e. that he was an outdated conservative fighting an impossible battle against the rise of Christianity. Now, there could well be some truth in this, and we will return to discuss what Julian's true significance and legacy are later on. But in the immediate immediate context of his campaign in the East, I feel that the troubles at Antioch were an unwelcome distraction from his focus on this crucially important Persian campaign.
Nevertheless, despite these problems, Julian's planning of the campaign was meticulous. He'd been working on it from the moment of Constantius's death in 361, and over the previous 15 months he'd not only built up an enormous army, but he'd also devised a clever strategy. His objective was to capture the Persian capital, Tessiphon, which had become symbolic in Roman minds with victory over Persia, having been captured three times by the Romans in the 2nd century AD, when it was controlled by the relatively weaker Parthian Empire, and then twice in the Roman recovery of the late 3rd century in AD 283 by the Emperor Carus, and then in AD 299 by Diocletian's Tetrarch Galerius. It also seems that he hoped to trigger the collapse of Shapur's regime by replacing him with his brother Hormizd, who had fled to Constantinople 40 years earlier and been cultivated by Constantine the Great as a rival to Shapur. As I mentioned in episode 28, this was one of the reasons why Constantine's relations with Shapur had deteriorated. So Hormizd travelled with Julian's army, waiting for his opportunity to replace him. To be honest, I think Julian was naive here, since it was quite frankly very unrealistic the Persians would accept an obvious Roman stooge like Hormizd. And this misjudgment is perhaps evidence that Julian's focus had indeed been distracted by the problems he'd encountered at Antioch. But even so, Julian's plan of campaign was undoubtedly clever, reflecting his fascination with military tactics and his extensive reading of the past Greek and Roman invasions of Persia, from the Athenian Xenophon in his famous March of the Ten Thousand to Alexander the Great, and then to the Roman Emperor Trajan, who had comprehensively trounced the Persians and captured Tessiphon. Now, to understand Julian's campaign, it's important to note that there were essentially two ways of marching an army to Tessiphon, either down the Euphrates or down the Tigris. Now, you really need to see a map to get a clear view of this, which I promise I will supply in my next book. But the key point to understand is that the two rivers start in Armenia or modern-day Turkey, where they're hundreds of miles apart, and then over the course of hundreds of miles, they begin to converge so that when they reached Tessiphon, they were only a few miles apart, although the two rivers don't actually join until they're much closer to the Persian Gulf. Now, you could attack Tessiphon down either river. The Tigris was a favoured option because Tessiphon was actually on the Tigris, But the Emperor Trajan had attacked it by sailing down the Euphrates with a fleet and then digging a canal linking to the Tigris so that the fleet could attack the city. Now, this was the shortest route to Tessiphon, and Julian decided to do the same. He also hoped to use the same canal which Trajan had dug, even though he was aware the Persians had blocked it up to prevent a repeat of this trick. Julian's clever tactics didn't end there. He also wanted to trick Shapur into thinking he was taking the Tigris route by advancing towards it and then splitting his army. He sent Procopius, who was a cousin so related to Julian and someone he thought he could trust, with 30,000 men towards Armenia and the upper part of the Tigris, while he headed south to the Euphrates with the bulk of the army, probably around 60,000 men. 
he knew that Shapur was located with his main army in the north along the Armenian frontier, which was the traditional battleground between Rome and Persia. So it was only to be expected that Julian would attack there. In addition, he made an agreement with the Armenian king Arshak II to join Procopius, so that there was quite a formidable Roman-Armenian army which would keep Shapur engaged in the north, while Julian sailed down the Euphrates in a surprise attack, capture Tessiphon, discredit Shapur, and cause a Persian revolution when Hormiz would conveniently be wheeled out as the next Persian Shah and Shah. So, it sounded like the perfect plan. And buoyed up with his success defeating the Germans in the West, Julian was desperate to execute it. But the rather surprising thing is that Chapeau wasn't in fact a major threat to him at this time. Chapeau's war with Rome blew hot and cold and not surprisingly was very much influenced by what else was going on in the Persian Empire, in particular what the steppe nomads along his eastern frontier were up to. In 359, Chapeau had inflicted a major defeat on Constantius by capturing the key Roman fortress city of Amida after a 73-day siege, but the Persians had also suffered huge losses and made almost no other progress against Constantius, who, to his credit, was always focused on and successful at containing Chapeau's ambitions to conquer the Roman East. Indeed, it seems Shapur was pretty alarmed by the prospect of Julian's massive invasion, as well as wary of Julian's reputation as a successful general in the West, and so he sent him envoys pleading for peace. But Julian had set his heart on this war, and nothing would dissuade him from setting off from Antioch in March 363. His army is estimated to have been anything from 65 to 95,000 strong, and whatever the precise number, it was certainly one of the largest Roman armies ever mustered in Rome's entire history. Our main source is the Roman historian Ammianus Marcellinus, who was on the campaign with Julian, and right from the beginning he recounts omens of doom as the army set off, such as the collapse of masonry from an arch on the soldiers as they passed through the town of Hierapolis, killing 50 of them, and another incident when a huge haystack collapsed and crushed 50 grooms. But this sort of superstitious storytelling after the event is very common with ancient and medieval writers and I think can be completely dismissed. Almost certainly the army's morale was in fact pretty high at the time since they were being led by Julian who was still hugely popular with the army and the size of the army was overwhelming and the prospect of booty and plunder from the Persians must have been extremely enticing for the common soldiers since plunder was, of course, the only real bonus of being a soldier in those days. After sending Procopius off on his decoy mission, Julian met up with a huge fleet that he'd had constructed, consisting of maybe as many as 1,250 ships and 50 pontoon vessels to facilitate river crossings. These ships had been built further north near to Samosata, and they joined Julian's army at the Roman town of Circesium. Together, the fleet and army set off down the Euphrates, with Julian travelling in a barge. 
The army was well supplied by the fleet, and everything seems set for another of Julian's great victories. Just before they passed into Persian territory on the 6th of April, Julian made a rousing speech to the army, which Ammianus Marcellinus has recorded. In it, Julian called the expedition an historic event, and the defeat of Persia would be like Rome's triumph over Carthage. Quote, The emperors Trajan, Verus, and Septimius Severus returned victorious from Persia, Angered by the fate of our captured cities and defeated armies, I am resolved to make our territory safe and strong. Should I be killed in battle, it will be as a willing sacrifice for my country. We must destroy Persia as our ancestors destroyed Carthage. What I ask from you is steadfast discipline in achieving this aim. End quote. The soldiers applauded their emperor, and Julian disappeared into the sunset, leading the greatest Roman army since Aurelian had defeated Palmyra nearly a hundred years before. And that ends this episode. Thanks so much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we'll find out what happened to Julian's epic campaign in the East. Oh, and I also wanted to remind you my first book about this podcast series called The Roman Revolution is still available for free on Amazon.com and Amazon.co.uk for another few days until the 8th of August. Not only is the content of the podcast set out in more detail and I hope better written, but you'll also find detailed maps showing things like where Illyria is in the Roman Empire, maps of Aurelian's campaigns and Diocletian's Tetrarchy. And you'll also find lots of photos of key historical sites relevant to this period, like the Arch of Constantine, Diocletian's Baths and much more. So just tap my name, Nick Holmes, or the book's name, The Roman Revolution, into Amazon and it should show up. Oh, and of course, if you do like it, then a review on Amazon would be amazing. Thanks for listening and see you next time. <music>